Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is the Schweppe, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, coming to you from Berlin. And today we are speaking with Matthieu Ossendreifer, director of the Zodiac Project at the Freie Universität Berlin, and a man who knows a thing or two about all manner of things, ancient scientific, ancient astronomical, ancient astrological, and cosmological, and Assyriological. Matthieu, thank you so much for inviting me to, to speak to you. Thank you, Earl, for having me. What is, can you introduce this project, the Zodiac Project? Yeah, this project, Zodiac, is about the introduction of the Zodiac and the use of the Zodiac in astrology, in astronomy, in, in social practices, in, in, in funerary practices. And people start to use the Zodiac and, and draw it in their coffins in Egypt. Uh, how could this concept, which was invented in Babylonia, spread to other cultures in the ancient world where people have different languages, different scripts, very different religious beliefs. How could this concept that is connected to all kinds of religious beliefs become accepted in other cultures? It's never really been answered how this was possible. We have here a phenomenon of uh, the spread of a concept and of images and knowledge and science and religious beliefs across the ancient world Quite comparable, maybe, I claim, to the spread of Christianity or other major ideas. Mm. Um, but no one has really answered how this was possible and why it happened in this period. So this is a very big question that, that we try to answer step by step. And so we hope that at the end of the project we have some kind of answer or narrative on how this happened. Okay. What is the scope of the project time-wise? When did it start and when is the end of the project? Yes, we, we have quite narrowly defined the scope of the project just to be sure that we are able to do it because the topic of zodiac and astrology and astronomy is vast. It never stops. It, it goes on. It never stops because it's, it's a modern science and astrology is a modern practice and you could go on forever studying this and how it uh, spread. But we, we look at the beginning and we say, uh, we talk about the first wave of spread, which is from Babylonia. To the ancient world, um, to Egypt, to the Greco-Roman world and neighboring cultures until about 300 AD. So that's a period of time starting with the introduction of the zodiac in the 5th century BC, maybe 450 BC or 430 or 420 BC, that's under discussion when the zodiac was invented in Babylonia, the zodiac of 12 signs of 30 degrees I mean. And, right. and, and then the first wave of spread of, of, of dissemination and transformation is what we look at. So as a non-specialist looking at this stuff, um, it's very interesting to me that you use the, uh, the spread of Christianity as, a, as a, com a, a comparative case, simply because that's also something that's remarkably dramatic and kind of difficult to explain with any single causal thing, like why then, why so thorough, why so dramatic? And looking at the less well-documented spread of the zodiac and of horoscopic astrology, and I'm here I'm really not a specialist, I just, it's like, why, how, what was so compelling about this particular thing? And the other thing you might think as a non-specialist is zodiacal horoscopic astrology was something that the ancient Chaldeans had been doing since time immemorial, and then it finally trickled out, but it wasn't, it was actually quite new yes. in the Near East. And then it just exploded, yes. and everyone got really interested in it. What's going on there? 
Yeah, that's <laughs> it's a remarkable phenomenon, and 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 and, and so my comparison, my by comparing this with the spread of Christianity, that's like a, a quite an, an ambitious uh, comparison, and and I'm not sure we will. Uh, really get... Uh, it gets the attention. It gets the attention. Now, to be honest, part of this is like raising attention for this remarkable phenomenon. And I think in that sense, comparing it to Christianity or the spread of Islam or very major ideas, religious uh, belief systems is, is justified. Um, uh, it's a remarkable phenomenon also, as you mentioned, because uh, the Zodiac and that, um, that came after it is quite recent. Within Babylonia itself, the zodiac was introduced in the 5th century, and uh, that's at, at, you could say, at the end of a very long history of Babylonian astronomy and mathematics, in which there was no zodiac of this kind, and in, in which there was no horoscope, uh, horoscopy. Right. Uh, so you had this, in, this omen literature going way, way back. Yes. But that something changes and it develops this new yes. methodology. Yes, something changes within Babylonia first, and even that change is not understood. We're actually not really focusing on, on how that happened. That's another difficult question. Like, how did it happen that in Babylonia the zodiac was invented and a new kind of astrology was invented, horoscopy, where any, well, we don't know if it was any private individual in Babylonia, but not only kings, but... Not the king, anyway. Not the, the king, uh, who was not that important anymore in Babylonian society, since, since Babylonia, from the 5th century, 6th century onward, was part of, of, of multicultural foreign empires. Right. The Persian Empire, and later on Alexander the Great, and the Seleucid Empire. So there was a king, but this was actually a remote person who only occasionally came to Babylonia to play the, to act his part as Babylonian king. Um, and in this period, we, we see the emergence of horoscopy, of astrologers coming up with the idea, hmm, we could like create this document with the positions of the planets. And by this, we could then tell people what is the fate of their child based on the date of birth. That was a new idea. Some of these ideas did exist in Babylonia, like that the date of birth could be important for telling someone's future. But these predictions in earlier periods were purely based on the date and not on where the planets were. So there was a right. type of astrology that was based on dates. That goes back. But, but then coming up with a new idea that you can predict the future of a child based on the positions of the planets on the day of birth, that is totally new. And, and um, one idea that has been floating around for decades is that, that there is a connection between the disappearance of the Mesopotamian king, the Babylonian king, and the emergence of this new horoscopy using like very uh, a capitalist uh, idea that these astrologers were formally paid by the king to serve the king and, and look at the sky and interpret the signs in the sky and tell the king, should he battle his neighboring country or, uh, you know, uh, is his son uh, uh, in danger for, for uh, is he getting ill or something? Uh, um, and since the king was no longer supporting these astrologers, because there was no more Babylonian king who, who could do that, they turned to other potential customers of their astrological service. There are many problems with that, with that idea because 
there is a quite a long time gap in between the disappearing of Babylonian kingship and the... the um, these academy, these scribal academies, or whatever you want to call them, go on, don't they, into the And they go period. on. And they're still being funded, and there's multiple yes. ones. And... So, so, there, so there are many problems with that. All I want to say is we don't really know, even within Babylonia, why this happened. We don't really understand why the zodiac uh, was invented, why horoscopy, private horoscopy uh, emerged, and the mathematical astronomy that you need to make a horoscope, because... Horoscopes contain computed data. Yeah. So computation is necessary to make a horoscope. Like That's modeling, basically. Modeling, mathematical modeling, or some kind of method of predicting planetary yeah. positions. Let me ask you another question from a non-specialist perspective, and you can tell me if I've got this right or wrong, or a bit of both, maybe. My understanding of this incredible knowledge transfer is that... Uh, I'm about to say, I feel dumb saying this, because I, but I hope you correct me in a, in a fruitful way, that, that there, there are these enormous archives of, of information, of observational information, that the omen observers have been keeping for th a thousand years at this stage, like a long time. Venus rose at this time, there were clouds in the sky, so it's, a lot of it is sort of weather, what we would consider weather plus astronomical phenomena viewed together, comets, anything unusual happening, it all gets observed. And that, those records get used as a kind of database to start looking for patterns so that when the mathematization, when this sort of modeling approach comes up in like the 6th, 5th century, they have this massive data base to look at and they can go back and check if they're right. They can, you know, back, they can, uh, what do you call it, back engineer their calculations into the past and see, does it work? Is this kind of right I think it's partly correct. Cool. There is some truth to that, but the reality is a bit more complicated. Um, so, uh, surely it's correct that uh, the computational methods, the methods which they developed for computing where is the moon and where are the planets, so that you could make a horoscope with these data for a given date that could be in the past. Because... It seems that in antiquity, quite often people uh, wanted to have a horoscope for their child, not exactly uh, around the time of birth, but sometimes much later, sometimes actually much later in life. So retrocomputation was then important right. to compute the phenomena for a, uh, for a date that could be decades into the past. And, and so um, the methods that were eventually developed to do that is what we call in our field mathematical astronomy. This is highly mathematical. It uses the 60-based number system, which the Babylonians already had for a long time, uh, to compute positions in the zodiac. And certainly these methods must have been derived in some manner from observational data. And as it happens, as you, as you indicate, there is a vast body of such observational data in, in a, a group of texts that we call astronomical diaries. Right. These are like reports, super dry, nerdy reports about what happens in the sky, but also um, it, it reports economic phenomena, economic data, it reports weather phenomena um, in, in highly standardized monthly reports that begin in the 6th century BC and were carried out or, and were produced Basically, without interruption is the common assumption until the end of cuneiform. Then we're talking about uh, well around the year zero, 
and, right. and, and so there was a vast database that could be used. But these, these reports, these astronomical diaries, are actually something different from, from, from the Omen texts. So the Omen texts that tell you if Jupiter is in the constellation Scorpion, the king will die. That's an right. Omen text. They go back even further in time. And there you can also find a lot of, uh, in a way, astronomical phenomena compiled in such Omen statements. Got it. But, but they, are, they don't have dates with them. They are, so to speak, detached from history. They're telling you what it means, but not when it happens yes. or anything like that. Yes. Right. Also clearly based on a lot of people stargazing, but maybe not in this kind of systematic way. Yes. Right. Not on the payroll yes. in the same way. And, and even here, there are still many questions unanswered about how and why did they actually begin to write these astronomical diaries? Because their style is so dramatically different from the Omen texts. There was, someone gave an order, right? Someone gave an order, probably the king. So, this, so then the question becomes, why did the king have this new concern? Why with... did the king have this new concern? It's not really understood. Mm. So, so the, the, the beginning of this project with the diaries, that's in the 7th century. Then it takes a few centuries before uh, the zodiac is invented. And um, in these astronomical reports, these astronomical diaries, you don't actually see much change when this happens. But there is a new section which they add to each monthly diary that tells you in which zodiac sign the planets are located. That's the only change that you see within the diaries. But what does happen is that uh, they develop this uh, mathematical astronomy with the algorithms to compute planetary phenomena uh, which they need to produce horoscopes. But within these reports you don't see actually uh, much change. You don't see this affecting how they report phenomena. They keep reporting the phenomena in unchanged uh, manner from centuries and centuries. We have some idea why, why, this, uh, why this happened. Why did it happen? Well, yes, uh, apart from, so apart from uh, what we call mathematical astronomy, that's the mathematical method to produce predictions of planetary positions in the zodiac in degrees, expressed in degrees and zodiac signs, there is an earlier predictive method or set of predictive methods that was developed by the Babylonians that emerged around, um, well, in the 7th century when they began to write the diaries. This method we now call in our field goal year methods. They are much simpler predictive methods. They're very good, actually. So with modern astronomy, you can verify how good these methods are. So the methods of mathematical astronomy are pretty good and very sophisticated. But this earlier method, which we call Goyer methods, are also very good, and they work with periods. So the Babylonians had found out for each planet, uh, after how many years... It would return to the same spot yes, in the sky? it will yeah. return to the same spot in the sky and on the same calendar date. Ah. These two conditions must be met, and uh, for each planet they knew such a period. For instance, for Venus, the appropriate period is eight years. Right. It means that you can, you can use reports of Venus uh, that you wrote down once to predict Venus phenomena eight years in the future from that report. This is what they used, this is what they systematically did, and we understand very well how they did this. We have all the traces in writing of the Babylonians using this particular method, and mm. it's connected. So this is why they needed to, these reports because for each prediction that you make with that earlier method you also need a report 
If you don't have the report, you can't project the report into the future. So, so that's actually another very interesting aspect that in Babylonia, so from a certain moment on, you have two completely different predictive methods for predicting planetary phenomena that actually both work very well. And they're running at this, is, is this a bit like having a lunar and solar calendars at the same time? You sort of use both and you just have to know how, at what point they coincide and what kind of correction you need to make every so often to make them are they using both at the same time? They are using both at the same time, but probably in for different purposes. Okay. And there are still some questions about you know, why actually did they make this gigantic effort to develop this mathematical astronomy? Is it only horoscopes? You know, there are, we don't have that many horoscopes from Babylonia. In terms of the number of tablets with horoscopes, it's like a few dozen, like 30 or 40. Mm. Uh, whereas we have a lot of tablets with mathematical astronomy, like the computed tables or instructions on how to do it. It's hundreds and hundreds of tablets. So I'm not sure that horoscopes fully explain yeah. why they develop mathematical ast astronomy as a new predictive method next to the older one, which they also continue to use. And actually the earliest horoscopes from Babylonia, which are from the 5th century BC, they look a little bit different from the later ones. And, and um, it's quite clear that they contain predictions, but they were made with the earlier method, mm -hmm. with this uh, so-called Golier methods. They, they have a different formulation. And um, for instance, the earliest horoscopes from Babylonia don't always quote phenomena for the exact date of birth, but phenomena in the neighborhood of the date of birth. Right. Because Jupiter didn't uh, happen not to become visible for the first time on the date of birth, but uh, uh, slightly later or slightly earlier, and the same with the solstice or the equinox. So they quote like data around the date of birth, which, if it's in the past, either copied from a di from a from an astrono astronomical report, or had predicted with this earlier method. And then at some stage, you see more and more mathematics creeping into. The prediction and you see horoscopes with predicted data for the date of birth that were clearly computed with the new methods. So let me ask you a question here. I'm gonna I want to bracket this question as an, an irresponsible question, a speculative question. As someone who's working intimately with this material, do you have any suspicions as to what if they're not just doing it because they're obsessed with horoscopes, right? Clearly there there's some horoscopes around, but it's not doesn't seem to justify this colossal effort in mathematics. What do you think they were investing all this effort for? Well, one idea uh, I have, not only me, but uh, uh, also others, is, is, is that what they were really after is, is a much more ambitious effort, not, not just producing horoscopes, which might have been a sideshow, actually, for the astrologers in Babylonia. Right. I'm not sure how important this activity was for them. In terms of uh, you know their discipline or 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 or, or their income, um, but I have the idea what they wanted to do is to kind of model everything that happens in the heavens in a mathematical way and be able to predict everything that happens in the heavens, in particular the planets and the moon, because they believe that in fact everything that happens on Earth in terms of economic phenomena, in terms of weather, in terms of what happens to individuals, to countries, is connected somehow to these phenomena. And um, there are quite a number of astrological 
texts from this late period that explicitly state how weather and market prices and their development, their dynamics, are connected to planetary phenomena. That's actually a new... You might think, oh, this is something the Babylonians always did, but this is something new. There is a new... Uh, there are some developments there that, to me, indicate that maybe they were after uh, a giant model for the entire world. And when you have that model, it's, it's, you, you understand everything. You can predict everything. In the, if, if you had the perfect model, yes. you'd be able to predict perfectly the price of wheat 50 years from now and whether it's going to rain on this day and everything, right? Everything. This is, there are hints. I mean, it's quite explicit hints of such an ambition in the text. Um, okay. But it's, it's not like a giant body of evidence. It's, it's a bunch of isolated texts or hints. And also asking yourself, why did they continue to write all these astronomical diaries, the reports that have not only the planetary phenomena, but weather? data and economic data and they tell you what happened in the city and whether a dog with three legs was seen in the city or, or, or odd events. There must have mm -hmm. been uh, an idea behind putting together all that material in the observational reports. Already that question is still not fully answered. Why on earth? Why don't they just write down the planetary phenomena and, mm. and, and try to develop uh, methods and theories for, for predicting these phenomena. Now that from the beginning they put together everything. So that is to me another hint. They were after something very ambitious. Brilliant. Speaking of very ambitious, you guys are, your team are among other services to the history of science, publishing, editing and publishing some unpublished later Babylonian astrological material and stuff like this. So the corpus that uh, scholars who don't work with uh, clay tablets have to work with is is going to grow based on the the findings of the zodiac project yes. which is great news uh, that stuff's too dry for my small brain but i'm glad it's it's being produced uh the next thing i'd love to ask you about is at some point in roughly the lifetime of plato a lot of this knowledge makes it to greece and my understanding is the Zodiac just shows up in a fragment of Eudoxus of Knidos, a younger contemporary of Plato, and that we don't have any idea how he learned about it, and that's just, it's just there. Do we, can we fill in the blanks any better as to how this knowledge transfer happened? The listeners to this uh, interview will want to remember that this is before the Hellenistic kingdoms, so the, you know, once you have the Seleucid realm, it's blatantly obvious how knowledge transfer is going to occur because there's Greeks, there's thousands of bilingual Babylonian Greek speakers rubbing shoulders all the time. And there's, you know, yes. but it's a little harder to, it's not impossible, obviously, because multilingualism was a fact of antiquity. But it's, it's a bit harder to see how this happened, how people in Athens were learning about the Zodiac. Yes, this is a, a difficult question indeed. So from the second century BC onward, we see an explosion right. in, in, the, in, in the spread of the Zodiac uh, from Babylonia to Egypt to the Greco-Roman world. You see it show up everywhere. Uh, we, we have scholars like Hipparchus, who, who uh, clearly had pretty direct uh, knowledge of Babylonian things and number systems and stuff. But if you go back in time to earlier periods in, in the history of Greek uh, science, it becomes difficult to see exactly how the Zodiac reached Eudoxus or Aratus. So these Greek scholars uh, from this slightly earlier period, they um, mention 
the zodiac uh, occasionally in their works, but I would say still in a pretty um, oblique manner. Uh, they don't talk, for instance, about the 30 degrees of the signs, I think. They talk about there being 12 parts right. in the zodiac. Um, and, and they talk about where is the sun, where are the equinoxes, where is the sun when we have an equinox, where is the sun in this, in this uh, zodiac. But how did this uh, zodiac reach those scholars? It's not really known, to be honest, and we haven't made very much progress on this. We are actually looking into this question. It's part of our, our, our ambitious project to also shed some light on this. So uh, most of the time, we have um, uh, a lot of effort has been put uh, in Zodiac on, on looking at slightly later periods when the Zodiac explodes in Egypt. And so we, right. uh, and there we have uh, new finds. But this earlier period is kind of difficult because the Zodiac had not yet really reached Egypt in significant uh, respects. But of course, in the, by the time of, uh, of Aristotle, there were scholars in the Eastern Mediterranean astrologers, scholars moving around. There was motion of astronomical knowledge, so to speak, uh, maybe through Anatolia reaching the Greek Isles. Right. So the it's, Greeks in the Achaemenid realm, they're, they're living in the same empire yes. as the Babylonians. and yeah. So they, they, they are in contact to various extents with people moving around in the Achaemenid, the Persian Empire, and, and of course there are interactions between the Persians and the Greeks. These interactions, of course, for us, these interactions are heavily colored by, by the Greek view on the, on the Persians and the whole literature that emerged uh, around mm. that. But there must have been uh, contacts in the Eastern Mediterranean, yeah. around the Greek Isles and in Anatolia. If we had as much old Persian literature as we do Greek, ancient Greek literature, we would have a much richer understanding of what was going on. Because we'd also get the, the, the Persian view of the Greeks, right? To, to balance out the, uh, yes. the kind of propagandistic, polemical <laughs> accounts we get. And also just some accounts of what life in the Achaemenid realms was like. We have Xenophon, we have a few things, but not as much as we'd like. Yes, and, and, and so certainly around the time, the time of Alexander the Great... Uh, we have a bit more concrete evidence of, of motion of scholars between East and West. And this might be an occasion when the Zodiac first reached Greeks. Uh, it might not have been happened much earlier. Right. Is Eudoxus... Eudoxus is, 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 is contemporary with Aristotle, I think, so that's right. slightly, yeah. slightly earlier. Or around that time, it's um, and there are traces of the zodiac in in, in uh, the works of uh, Eudoxus. There's also in Plato, and this is very not at all written. I'll just quickly say it because I'm interested in Plato. You know, that it's very clear that Plato is interested in modeling the cosmos using spheres, uh, spherical motions. Whether they're meant to be mathematical abstractions or real motions or not, it's a bit unclear. But he's He's very aware of the ecliptic and the celestial equator, seemingly, based on the Timaeus. Uh, and that he thinks it's really important that these exist. Yes. And this is the zodiac territory. Even if yes. you're not talking about these 12 signs, this is the, the part of the sky that the zodiac occupies, right? So it almost feels like he knows something about the zodiac, maybe. Obviously, it's very speculative. And he's 
reputed doxographically to have, you know, associated with Eudoxus. Um, Eudoxus studied with him a bit, but that's all, you know, it's very yes. messy. And I see in Plato clearly uh, knowledge of the ecliptic, knowledge of planetary motion. If you read carefully the Timaeus mm. passages, which are sometimes very difficult to understand, the way he writes. Intentionally so, I think. Yes, intentionally, but it's clear that he's talking about an oblique circle which which uh, can only be identified with what we call the ecliptic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Offset. circle that crosses another circle in, in a high uh, letter, yeah. like the X. And he talks about uh, the, seven, the five or seven planets, and he actually talks about some of their qualities that shows uh, his interest in planetary motion, but no specific data about right. Uh, their periods or something like that, and no reference to the zodiac in, in, in the sense of a division of that ecliptic circle into parts, into 12 parts. That is, as far as I know, nowhere found in Plato. Right. So there's two more questions that I add. There's a million little detailed questions about this knowledge transfer that I, I'd love to ask you if you have time. But there's two questions I think I need to, I need to ask you for reasons of um, like sort of responsible interviewing. And... One of them is really relevant to the state of the field, the field you're in. I mean, you're in a number of fields, I guess, depending on how you want to divide it up. But you're in the history of science, history of mathematics, history of culture, or just you know, history, history of ideas. And this, this particular juncture that you and your project oper operate in, where you need to know a lot of, you need to do, do some actual like, geometry and arithmetic and number crunching, and you really need to know your maths. But you also need to know a bunch of languages that hardly anyone knows and a lot of his cultural history. And, you know, you have to kind of think your way back to being an ancient Babylonian, which most mathematicians can't do. No. Most people who can think themselves back to being an ancient Babylonian can't do the maths. So it's a very specific set of skills. It seems to me that one of the first people who really had that set of skills in spades was Neugebauer, the famous scholar of ancient mathematics and exact sciences, who published... 50s and 60s and 70s? Correct me if I'm wrong. He started publishing in the 30s. Okay. When he was still in Germany. Right. And, and then he went to Chicago? He, he first went to Copenhagen, then he went to Brown University, Providence, Rhode Providence. Island. Okay. Yes. Um, so he, he, correct me if I'm wrong, but he sort of set the table. He, he, he did this work that is foundational for what you guys do. Yes. And he published an article, in the title of which was something like "On Studying Wretched Subjects," and he was basically making an argument to his colleagues that there is a reason to study what, at the time, it was completely fashionable and correct to say was pseudoscience of the past, the delusions of ancient people who didn't have science yet, like. It, it's okay to study that stuff. It's valuable to study that stuff, right? So he had to kind of make a, a pro-causa um, pro sua apology yes. to his colleagues. Um, what's changed in the academic world since he uh, published that article, would you say? A lot, a lot has changed. So first of all, he is and remains a, a, a super important scholar of ancient astronomy, ancient mathematics. So for Babylonian science in particular, 
he produced the first and still major edition of the mathematical texts already in the 30s and then later on he, he worked on Babylonian uh, mathematical astronomy and being trained as a mathematician, I'm talking about Otto Neugebauer, um, he, he definitely had a view of uh, that is informed by mathematics, by more modern mathematics. So he has expressed quite some, uh, you know, uh, negative opinions about astrology, but he came around because he understood how important astrology uh, is for the subject, for the, for the namely history of science, history of knowledge and history of astronomy. Um, and, and so this is why he wrote that particular article, because in his time, we're talking about the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, many historians of science, especially historians of the natural sciences, historians of astronomy and physics, didn't want to deal with astrology. They thought it's pseudoscience, you know, some people might want to write about this, but it's all bullshit. It's, it's not part of, you know, it's not part of the evolutionary chain that leads to... Uh, Newton, quantum physics, Einstein. So we can just forget about it. And he, he clearly decided, no, this is not the right way to look at astrology. And, and uh, in his time, that was, that was uh, a daring uh, move. But I would say by now, uh, the field has developed uh, further and actually continued on that path so that um, I think no serious historian of science uh, certainly not, not those working on, on, on antiquity or, or, uh, or medieval time or, or oriental cultures or any. Actually, I would say any period of the history of science um, can afford to ignore astrology or other realms of knowledge that some would call pseudoscience. Yeah. So this is no longer actually a category that's used by scholars working on ancient science. And mm. how you then want to call it, that, well, that's a matter of uh, debate. Uh, but uh, certainly for us and for uh, all of my colleagues who work on Babylonian science or ancient Egyptian science, this is not a division that we take seriously anymore because there was no division between these different realms of knowledge. I mean, astrology, um, theology, and astronomy. There was no division uh, between these different fields in antiquity. It was the same scholars in Babylonia who did mathematical computations and carried out rituals in the temple and wrote astrological tablets. They were the same scholars. Mm. And in the same manner, like Claudius Ptolemy, the famous astronomer, also was an astrologer who wrote a famous treatise on astrology. And we can go forward in time to see how, how these things remain connected. Thank you for that. Now a more specific question to your so having, having moved on to this more friendly academic environment where you can have a, a project like this, Zodiac project, and it's this amazing sort of mini research institute in dialogue with physics over there and uh, mathematics over there and part of this uh, really thriving interdisciplinary ecosystem in, the, in Berlin and the world. I guess what, what are the big news things you've found, your project has found, since Neugebauer, let's say? What advances have you made? And what do you think are interesting avenues to explore in, in the future of the project that are likely to produce um, you know, changes in our picture of how the zodiac spread and how ancient astrology yes, operated? Yes, well, that, that's a big question. So first of all, let me say that, that zodiac has this super ambitious goal of 
creating an explanation or formulating a narrative as to how and why the zodiac and everything that's connected to it spread in antiquity from Babylonia to other ancient cultures. So this is something we hope to achieve by the end of the project. So we're now actually working in great detail at individual topics and, and try to create material that will eventually produce the answer to the big question. So we have this big question looming in, at the back, in the background, but right now we, we're all working on our sources and, and, and discovering all kinds of things. Like I, I work, I, I continue to work mainly on Babylonian astronomy and, and um, uh, find interesting new tablets with computational methods that were not known before. Um, or my colleagues, I have colleagues in the team who work on the Egyptian material. And one thing that is, has become quite clear, especially uh, now with Zodiac, is that Egypt plays a much more important role than already thought. It was already known that Egypt played an important role in, in the spread of the Zodiac in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC and after that also. Uh, but this seems to be even more important. So one idea that people used to have is that uh, the Zodiac and mathematical astronomy and astronomical knowledge uh, reached the Greeks directly, also those who were in, in Egypt, for instance, in Alexandria, which is, was a major center of scholarship with Greek scholars also working on astronomy. And the standard idea was that the Babylonian knowledge that can be found, for instance, in Claudius Ptolemy's Almagest and elsewhere, uh, reached the Greeks directly, because the Egyptians were considered to be too stupid, to be honest. This is basically the, the old view. Um, Which you find in Neugebauer. Yes. He says something like they had no mathematical science worthy of the name or something yes. like that. Yes, he uh, basically said in his great standard work, um, History of Ancient Mathematical uh, Astronomy, his chapter on Egypt has a kind of a disclaimer that he, 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 he gives a justification as to why he actually includes a chapter on Egypt. Whereas it, because in his view, it, it's, it's not really worthwhile. Well, um, in, in fact, uh, we know now much more about uh, Egyptian mathematical astronomy that which they took over from the Babylonians in part, partly because of colleagues Alexander Jones in New York who published and translated all these astronomical papyri in Greek. But they are actually in Greek from Egypt. Yeah. That already told us there is a lot of mathematical astronomy in Egypt, mostly written in Greek. But you know these uh, astrologers who did it, they might actually be Egyptian because in this time, Egypt was in, at least in part a bilingual uh, nation. But what we now know more clearly that actually similar methods, mathematical methods, are found in Demotic. So in uh, in on, in Demotic writing, which is a, a a stage of the Egyptian language and the Egyptian script, so there is much more clear evidence now, and we are working on uh, on that in, in in Zodiac and have found additional evidence there, that there was some degree of direct borrowing between Babylonia and native Egyptians, right? Probably as a stage in between the Greeks and the Babylonians. And this even applies to quite complicated Babylonian uh, mathematical methods for computing the motion of Mercury and, and other things. So, so that's, that's a, a new insight. People have asked me about that in written to the Schwepp and said, okay, you covered the Babylonian you know, omen literature and the origins of astrology and stuff. 
and then you went straight to the Hermes text and Petosides and Hellenistic astronomy astrology, which comes out of Egypt, but it's Greek language. Yes. Where's the Egyptians? And I was just kind of like, well, Neugebauer says they, they weren't doing anything. So there they are. There's the Egyptians. There is, there is indeed much more. Uh, and that's yeah. partly actually Neugebauer can't really be fully blamed for that because he couldn't know about the sources. Yeah. So a lot of these sources... Uh, there's a lot of papyri out there. There's papyri out there. Uncatalogued. That's were ignored because they are... First of all, this is material, this is practices from the latest period of Egyptian history. And as is usually the case in, uh, with, with, with uh, Egyptologists and also uh, people working on Mesopotamia, these late periods that we are interested in and where these interesting developments happen tended to be ignored right. in earlier stages. It's, an early, it's a late decadent period. Yes. We want the pure stuff. Yes, in some you know history books about Egypt or Babylonia, these periods are not actually considered to be part of Egyptian or Mesopotamian history at all. Right. They're not actually like cut off. So that uh, and that has changed, of course. Actually, in Neugebauer, at the end of his life, uh, in the eighties, he himself published one of these Greek language papyri from Egypt with the Babylonian computation of lunar uh, phenomena. Uh, that made him, at the end of his life, wonder, oh, if this little fragment contains this lunar computation, it means there must be much more. Right. So that's an interesting uh, thing that Neugebauer himself, uh, just before Alexander Jones, then took up that job of publishing all that material. Uh, so Neugebauer's instincts were right. His instincts were right. Yeah. And we're talking about the 80s. But, but that was Greek material, and what we now know, it's also much more... Uh, there's much more Egyptian language material with the same kind of stuff. Mm, cool. And so a lot, much of that is unpublished. And uh, so in the field of late Egyptian astrology, late Egyptian astronomy and late Babylonian astrology, there is a lot of material that's unpublished. And we are finding, making new discoveries in these areas, like almost on a weekly basis, we find new, like new little details that have not yet been published in part. Give me an insight into your working methods. Is this a case of calling up archives and saying, can you send me a digitized copy of this? Is it a case of going and leafing through mountains of papyri, looking for keywords? This might be astronomical. Like, how does it, how does it work? Both, I would say. And, so, and also, of course, there's some stuff published and you look in the catalog and you go, ooh, that looks interesting. I'm going to follow that up. And, yes. So we, we try to do as, as much as possible um, uh, digitally and by, by contacting collections and, and or mm. sometimes you can just download photographs of cuneiform tablets, for instance, from the website of the British Museum or other project websites that collect photographs or make photographs. There's a big project of digitizing the entire uh, collection of Babylonian tablets in the British Museum in, in Munich. There is such a project that we use a lot. But not all the tablets, which are in London in the British Museum, and there are a lot of astronomical and astrological tablets there, are actually all available on that website. And even if you have a photograph of a tablet, um, that's just one view of a tablet. And for tablets, it is still necessary often to go to the collection and, and look at the tablet. I did that three weeks ago. I spent four days in the British Museum, uh, which I do about once per year. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you get a list of, of goodies that you want, and yes. you go there and say, "Get me these." In this case, uh, so me and my colleagues who work on Babylonian astral science—that's uh, astronomy and astrology—we have quite a good catalog 
um, that will tell you which fragments and tablets, many of them unpublished, have an astronomical or astrological content and we can just order them and look at them. In other fields, in other museums, the situation is more difficult. There might not be a catalogue that's published, or sources might be reserved by scholars and not accessible to other scholars. That's a big issue. We don't have many issues with that in, in our field of Babylonian astronomy, but I know in Egyptology and with papyri, it's a little bit more difficult sometimes to get access to sources and be allowed to publish them. Um, but all in our team do this. So all, all of us, we travel, we go to collections, we look at the sources, we photograph them if this is allowed, and then we publish them and we download photographs from the museum collections. And uh, we try to find new sources. That's, an, that's still an, uh, a possibility. That's a nice mm. aspect of our project that we still have a lot of potential to look at new sources that can like help us answer our questions but also revisiting published sources, finding new pieces that join them, for instance, uh, or reinterpreting them mm. uh, is, is something we all do. Brilliant. Nice. We were t- before we started recording, we were talking about practice and how important it is. And um, it's, I think, really cool for our listeners to get a picture of, of the practice of the kind of scholarship you do, rather than just we read texts. It's like, no, you actually get 2,000, 3,000-year-old clay uh, pages of clay books and and yes and try to figure out what they say and reconstruct the 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 bit of the sign that's broken in half and all this kind of stuff yes Um, now so we've talked about some gaps being filled what about what do you see as the most promising areas of research future research within our project or within your book both start with your project maybe and then and then get as ambitious as you want you know yes a major plan or uh aspect of our project is to look at how knowledge is transformed. And I think this is a key to, to answering questions about how and why knowledge, I mean uh, astronomy, astrology, horoscopy, uh, was able to travel from one culture to another. So we try to look at how it was transformed. What is the difference between a horoscope from Babylonia and a horoscope from Egypt? So you might think, oh, this is like quite simple and people have done it. No, people haven't actually done it. So if you are an Assyriologist, you will publish Babylonian tablets. If you are a pepperologist, you might publish Greek papyri. But what we try to do is to compare um, these different sources and see what has changed. What did these Greeks working in Egypt or the Egyptians in Egypt change in algorithms or in the way they express zodiac signs, in in the names for the zodiac signs and in the technical terminology, how did they translate it from uh, one language to the other so that it could be something they could work with. So we see these transformations, these changes from one culture to another or maybe also within one culture over time as important markers of, of how things were made important and acceptable in a certain community or in a certain uh, religious uh, context. Right. And, and so this is a major thing we're after. And um, that's actually what Zodiac is about, about bringing together specialists from different disciplines who might actually, you know, themselves, if they were by themselves, continue to look only at Babylonian astronomical tables like me. But here um, we collaborate on a very regular basis to compare these things and to see how 
knowledge transforms from region to region. And I, I think this is where we can expect um, the most important information to answer our questions in, in, in this. It sounds actually very, it sounds a bit tedious, maybe and nerdy, but I think by really diving into the details of how knowledge changes and how things are formulated differently and translated, and this applies not only to texts and, and, and tables and numbers, but also images, because our project also deals with images. How is the zodiac depicted? You know, how are the twins or, or areas depicted in Babylonia and in Egypt? You see quite important changes there. You know, then right. the Greeks and the Romans. How did these uh, images change and why? Is there something there that will tell us, you know, how the zodiac was made acceptable for an Egyptian? Right. Or not just acceptable, but uh, sexy and, yes. and artistically engaging and, yes. you know what I mean? Like when you make a, a picture of a saint or a god or an angel or a, a planetary ruhaniyah or whatever, you do it in a way that's meant to... that conveys religious awe, potentially, and, and um, a deep sense of conviction. You don't make a, a, an icon in the Greek Orthodox Church that's a bit lame. You make an icon that's powerful. So that's the, you know, obviously we can't convey that very well through a spoken dialogue, but that iconographical side of the whole question yes. is fascinating. And, and that's a really cool thing about your, your project as well. You've got this whole kind of graphical study of depictions of the Zodiac over time, which is superb, really cool stuff. Um, the goat snake is my personal favorite. Yes. Capricorn. Just because who thought a goat snake was even a thing in the first place? And that, to me, when I was first kind of looking into this transmission to Greece, I just thought to myself, dang, you know, it's very, very clear that this is a case of something that came up in the Near East being just absorbed by Greek culture because there's no way two cultures in parallel came up with a goat snake. Like that's pretty specific. Yes. It's super specific, and and uh, it's one of those cases where you have something that is deep root, deeply rooted in Babylonia, mm. the goat fish. Uh, oh, it's a goat fish. Yeah, okay. it's actually in Babylonia. It's a it's it's a mixed creature, uh, consisting of a goat and a fish, and that that ends up in Egypt and in in, in Greece and in the Roman world, and and they do interesting things with it. Yeah. Down to the present day, where I believe there is a metal band called Goat Snake. Oh, I didn't know about that. But maybe they should change the name to Goatfish. They probably should. They, they, I'm going to call them and tell them that they are. Um, they've led me down the wrong path in interpreting this ancient iconography, and they're probably misleading their fan base. They need to sort it out. But maybe there is a Goat Snake in in, in, in Western iconography. There might that, well be. That I don't know about. <laughs> Goatfish. Thank you. On that note, Matir Osen that I heard. Thank you so much for speaking to us about your project and stay esoteric. Thank you for having me. I'll do my best. Nice one. Man.